Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben Peacock. Um, I am a pastor at Rosalie Baptist Church, so that's down in Brisbane. Um, If you know kind of Milton or near Suncorp Stadium, that's where we are, so pretty inner-city Brisbane. Um, I am married, and I've got three boys under seven, Um, and unfortunately, my wife and our boys couldn't come this morning because they had other commitments uh, at our normal service uh, at Rosalie this morning as well. Um, So most Sundays are usually pretty busy because that's my busiest day of the week as a pastor. Um, so it's a, it's a relatively small congregation, and most Sundays we get about 80 people to our services, um, and so it's a really encouraging um, place, um, and it's an opportunity for us to minister the gospel to one another. It's something that gives me great joy as a pastor, um, allowing other people to minister to me as well as we seek to grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus together as a church um, community. So it's great to be able to come here um, and to be able to open up God's Word for you this morning. Um, And um, yeah, it's a great privilege to be able to allow God to speak to us. And so as he does that this morning, we might pray as we begin and ask for the Spirit's help um, as we seek to understand God's Word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken to us. You've spoken us through your Son, Jesus, and you continue to speak uh, through him as we um, see Um, him in your written word, the scriptures. Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning that you would indeed again speak to us. Uh, Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Would you um, convict us where we need to be convicted of sin? Would you encourage us where we need encouragement? And uh, above all, Father, may our knowledge and love of Jesus grow um, as you speak to us so that we can love him and serve him and love one another and serve one another better with the gospel of your Son. Speak to us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, through your words, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last 20 years or so, there's been a massive explosion in technological advancement around our world. Of all of the changes we have witnessed, the internet and social media has probably been Uh, one of the biggest impacts that we've had on the way that we live and also how we communicate with one another. Email, text messages, WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok, just to name a few. The thing, things that seemed impossible 40 years ago are now commonplace. Technology has powerfully connected friends and family um, from around the world. In many ways, the internet has brought people closer together, but there are also many ways that the internet has done the exact opposite. And one aspect that the internet hasn't helped is working through interpersonal conflict. There's one uh, British political commentator who says that people who interact and communicate online are slowly but surely losing the art of resolving conflict. You look through most comments or any threads on Facebook, it's actually hard to find anyone apologise. You look through any Twitter feed, it is hard to find people who acknowledge fault. Very rarely do you see someone apologise on social media and consequently it is becoming more and more difficult for us to see good models of people resolving conflict. In the world of online communication, 
Retaliation is always, always winning over reconciliation. And as a platform of engagement, social media is designed for instant gratification. The internet has removed our need to wait for things. It it requires minimal efforts for us to engage with other people online. It's also a space where, that is designed for self-promotion. And anyone who has been through interpersonal conflict will know that forgiveness never comes quickly. Reconciliation between two people who have hurt each other takes a long time. It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of effort. And it takes humility. Accepting fault and seeing things from another person's perspective doesn't come easily or quickly. By their very nature, the internet and social media as platforms kind of do the exact opposite of what conflict resolution needs. And this is why I think we are slowly losing the art of forgiveness. I'll ask you right now, when was the last time you publicly saw a good example of forgiveness and reconciliation online? When was the last time? I'm sure there's probably been DMs or personal messages where it might have happened, but I'm talking about publicly. If we stop for a moment and look at the world around us, we have to recognise that we live in a world where it's easier to cancel someone than to reconcile with someone. We see a world where it is easier to punish someone than to pursue peace with someone. We see a world where people choose retaliation over reconciliation. We see a world and we live in a world that is fast losing the art of forgiveness. This morning we are going to look at one of Jesus' parables. Parables are stories that Jesus told to help explain what his kingdom is like, key truths about what it looks like to live in Jesus' kingdom. And in these parables, we get a taste of what God is like. We get a taste of what Jesus is like, and we get a taste of what it looks like for us as God's people to live in Jesus' kingdom. This morning, we are going to consider the parable of the two debtors and the encounter that Jesus has over a meal with a religious leader. And from this story, we are going to discover the key to giving and receiving forgiveness that will help us continue to live in this world that is fast losing the art of forgiveness. Look with me from verse 36 where the story begins. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she leaned, uh, reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, and the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. The story begins in verse 36 with a Pharisee inviting Jesus to come and share a meal at his house. Straight off the bat, Luke wants us to know that this isn't any ordinary meal. 
the significance of this meal revolves around who it is that invited Jesus. Twice in verse 36, once in verse 37, and again in verse 39, Luke highlights who Jesus is having the meal with. He says, one of the Pharisees. Jesus went into the Pharisee's house. Again in verse 37, Jesus is reclining at the Pharisee's house. And in 39, the Pharisee who invited Jesus. In the previous two chapters, we see that Jesus has had multiple run-ins with the Pharisees already. In chapter 5, the Pharisees grumble at Jesus because he chose to dine with tax collectors. Jesus' famous response back in chapter 5 reveals a key part of what his ministry was all about. Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Pharisees had built their entire reputation, the entire system of their life was built around trying to make themselves good before God, just like we learnt in the kids' story before. And they did that by trying to separate themselves from people who were considered to be sinners and outcasts and rejected. They wanted to separate themselves from the bad people. In chapter 6, the Pharisees try to catch Jesus out by doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus showed the Pharisees that even King David took the bread of the presence which was not lawful to do. But in his moment of need, he ate the bread. And Jesus concludes this interaction with the Pharisees in chapter 6, saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath bows to Jesus. The Pharisees' attitude towards Jesus is one of wanting to discredit him, to find fault in him. The Pharisees are the bad guys in Luke's gospel. Again, in chapter 6, at verse 6, the Pharisees try to catch Jesus out, seeing whether he would heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath or not. And we are told by Luke They did this so that they might find reason to accuse Jesus. Jesus heals the man. And the Pharisees' response is in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. In these three encounters, we can clearly see that the Pharisees didn't gel with Jesus. They didn't get along. And so in our story this morning, Jesus is now invited to one of the Pharisees' house to share a meal. And we are forced to consider, is this Pharisee, just like the other Pharisees, trying to catch Jesus out, to find reason to accuse him? Or is this Pharisee genuine, truly wanting to discover who Jesus is for himself? We don't know his motives yet, but we will find them out as the story unfolds. And we will discover that there are gaping holes in this Pharisee's theology of forgiveness and love. So that's the Pharisee. Next, we are introduced to a woman who is probably the central character in this whole story. She isn't given a name. She is simply described as a woman of the city who was a sinner. 
This woman catches wind of the fact that Jesus is going to share this meal with this Pharisee and she picks up an alabaster flask of ointment and goes straight to the house where Jesus is. Meals in the first century were an incredibly public affair, very different to how we do meals when we invite people around now. They were very public, especially when they were shared at the house of someone who was um, socially or politically or religiously significant, like it is in this case. It was not uncommon for people to walk in off the street and listen to what was being discussed by the people in that meal. And so what would happen is sometimes even the less unfortunate people in society would come in and this is how they used to get the dregs of the meal that were being left off for the side. And so when people gathered for a meal, they would actually lie down, usually on their left side, with their feet facing outwards. So if you can imagine a a table in the middle, people are all lying down or reclining on their left with their feet facing away from the table and their head facing towards the table, and they would lean over with their right hand and they would grab food and eat like that. So all of these other people in this very public venue would be around the feet of these people. And we read in verse 8 how this woman comes to the Pharisee's house and she stands behind Jesus' feet and she begins to weep. This is not the kind of weeping we normally see in TV or movies. This is ugly crying. She's sobbing. Tears are flooding with such force from her face that Jesus' feet needed to be dried. Just imagine that in your mind's eye. Without a towel, the woman unties her hair and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. For a Jewish woman to untie her hair like this in those days was extraordinary. It was culturally and socially unacceptable, perhaps even shameful for her to do so. It seems foreign to many of us, but for many in Jesus' day, to untie your hair like this was at best immodest and at worst sexually suggestive. But even though her actions were socially or culturally or religiously taboo, what it actually does is it expresses her exuberant um, devotion and gratitude that she has for Jesus. To top it all off, the woman kisses Jesus' feet and she pours ointment, precious ointment that was in the alabaster flask over his feet. This, this ointment, or more likely, was, a, was an expensive perfume. Um, it could have actually been the dowry that she had saved for her marriage. People would have seen her doing this and go, you are wasting this. It's deeply valuable. And she uses it to anoint Jesus. Don't miss what's going on here. At great cost to this woman's own reputation, she serves Jesus. She takes on the form of a lowly servant washing Jesus' feet, kissing and anointing Jesus' feet. Something that many of you will know that Jesus does himself for his own disciples just before he is crucified. 
She's sobbing uncontrollably, making an absolute scene in the middle of this public meal. And all this, all this she does to show her immense love, gratitude for Jesus. This woman is courageous. She counts the cost and she goes ahead and lavishes her love and devotion and affection on Jesus. Don't misunderstand this. This is not romantic love. It is a love that is genuine out of a response of what Jesus has done for her. To lavish this kind of exuberant, over-the-top, lavish display of love and devotion towards Jesus brings a level of shame on her to everyone else in the room. To everyone else in the room, her behaviour is completely ridiculous. And we catch this in the Pharisees' response in verse 39. Look at that verse there. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Notice carefully that the Pharisee's critique is not actually levelled at the woman. His critique's actually levelled against Jesus. It was here we begin to discern the true motives of this Pharisee. We see that he's invited Jesus round to find out whether he's a legit prophet or not, and he has decided, no, he is not legit. After he has seen that Jesus has allowed this woman to touch him, this Pharisee has made up his mind. And in this Pharisee's mind, Jesus couldn't possibly be a prophet. A true prophet wouldn't allow a sinful, unclean woman like this to touch him, let alone interact with him. But notice the irony here. Because Jesus discerns the inner thoughts of this Pharisee and calls him out on it. And the irony is the fact that Jesus is the true prophet because he is able to discern the true thoughts of this Pharisee. Jesus supernaturally can glean this Pharisee's thoughts as he begins to doubt Jesus and his claim to a prophet as a, t- a claim to uh, the title of prophet. And this is something we need to all consider for ourselves this morning. Jesus As God's prophets, there is nothing in all of our lives, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, there is nothing that is hidden from Jesus. He knows everything. He knows every intricate details of our lives, our thoughts, our motives, our intentions. Jesus knows this Pharisee and Jesus knows you and me intimately. Perfectly, he can discern our innermost thoughts. And as he discerns these thoughts, Jesus responds in verse 40. And for the first time in this story, the Pharisee is named. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say 
to you? And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500, owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The parable that Jesus tells here is pretty straightforward. There's no kind of hidden, um, hidden holes around this. It's pretty simple. A banker lends money to two people. Both of these people are in debt to the money lender. One of them is in debt ten times more than the other, but both of them find themselves in the same predicament. Neither of them can pay the debt back. In an act of unbelievable grace, by the way, I've never met a banker like this who just forgives debts. I don't know if anyone else has met a banker like this. It's, it's a story, so it's a parable, so run with it. But this banker, in an act of unbelievable grace, overlooks the debt. He forgives it. He pardons it. They are both set free from the debt that hung over them. So we've got one moneylender who loans money. Two people who are in debt, two people who can't pay the debt back, and a gracious moneylender who forgives the debt. Now, let, let's be honest, both of these people would be immensely grateful for what the moneylender has done, right? Both of them will undoubtedly show immense gratitude, immense love and gratefulness to the moneylender who cancelled the debt. And Simon gets it. He nails it. He gets the parable. He gets that the degree of love is greater for the person who had the larger debts cancelled. Likewise, he also understands that the person who had the lesser debts showed a smaller degree of love to the gracious money lender. Now, let's pause for a moment and actually see how this story is actually a picture of the gospel. Both people in the parable received money from the moneylender. Both were indebted to him and the moneylender, even though they were unable to pay the debt back, graciously forgave them. Not because of anything that they've done, but because of his gracious and merciful character. And this is the same for every single one of us here this morning. There is no one here, myself included, who doesn't have a debt before God. Every single one of us has sinned against God and rebelled against God in, in thought and word and in deed. Every single one of us have a debt to God. In this parable, we are the ones who are in debt and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death and his resurrection and the offer of forgiveness, we are given the opportunity through faith and repentance of our sin to Jesus to receive the kind of forgiveness that this moneylender owes as well. The truth is the same for all of us here this morning. All of us, apart from Jesus, are in debt, immeasurably in debt to God. We are separated from God. Our heads are way under water in debt and we need someone to bail us out. 
And this is what Jesus came to do through his death and resurrection. Friends, this is insanely good news that Jesus did this for us. The first truth that this parable teaches us about forgiveness is that every single one of us need it. Both of the people in the parable needed, the, needed to be forgiven. Like the Pharisee and the woman, all of us have incurred a debt against God. And in sending Jesus to die on the cross, Jesus absorbed the penalty that was due for us. And through his resurrection from the dead, sin, Satan, and the consequence of death has been stripped away from all of its power. Jesus' resurrection proved that his sacrifice for our sin was sufficient to quash the debt that our sin had incurred. And this is the first thing we need to be reminded of this morning about forgiveness. All of us need to be forgiven. And only through Jesus is that forgiveness possible. But this, I don't think, is the most dramatic part of this encounter. Even though the parable is understood by Simon, the practical implications of it are about to be unpacked. You see, in the first century, if someone was invited to share a meal, the host would have certain obligations to fulfil to ensure that the guest they had invited felt welcomed and well cared for. There were social norms that needed to be met by the host. The job of the host is to make the guest feel honoured and respected. And especially in a culture that valued hospitality like the Jewish culture in the first century, social etiquette mattered massively. Likewise, not only the host had obligations, but so too did the guest. To speak well of the host, to honour the host, and to respect them for their extension of hospitality. But notice what happens between Jesus and the Pharisee here. Look at the conversation from verse 44. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. In an extraordinary breakaway from social etiquette, Jesus doesn't honour Simon, he shames Simon for his lack of hospitality to Jesus. He then goes on to highlight the exemplary hospitality of this sinful woman who showed up. Where Simon fobbed his obligations as the host, the woman made up for his lack in spades. And in this stunning breakaway from social convention, Jesus shames the host and he honours the sinful woman as being a better host than Simon. And Jesus points out these three ways where Simon had neglected him. He gave me no water, 
You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head. And she has gone above and beyond in every respect. And Jesus' assessment of Simon's hospitality, or lack of hospitality, should I say, is cutting. Verse 41. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many... Notice he doesn't overlook them. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What is Jesus saying here? What is the point of this? Is he saying that the woman's extravagant love is the reason why she was forgiven? Is Jesus suggesting that she was saved by what she did? How does this square with the fact that we know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? If we are to follow the logic of the parable, we need to recognise that both of the people, both of the people who are in debt are forgiven before their love is expressed to the moneylender. On top of this, the woman hears that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house and then she goes to the Pharisee's house. All of this was before her extravagant display of love. This highlights that this is probably not the first time that this woman has interacted with Jesus or heard from Jesus. It's actually quite possible that she has either heard him preach about the kingdom or maybe she's seen him perform miracles it's very likely that this woman has already encountered Jesus before. And it's also likely that she has repented of her sin before this event. And then finally, Jesus' declaration of salvation in verse 50 shows that it is her faith that has saved her, not what she's done. It is her trust in Jesus that saves her, not her exuberant display of love and affection for Jesus. On the basis of this, I take it that this woman had already encountered Jesus in the midst of her sin, and he forgave her and restored her, and this event at the Pharisee's house is the response to that. And what Luke, as the Gospel writer here, wants us to see, what he wants us to see, is that love and service of Jesus flows from a grateful heart for those who have been forgiven an immeasurably large debt. She loved much because she was forgiven much. But more than that, Jesus' words here are not just to highlight the exuberant love of the woman, but the lack of love of Simon. And he's highlighting this to the other people around him as well. Remember, this is a public meal. People are seeing this. And look at their response in verse 48. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? The point of this story is to show that every single person, every single one of us even, needs God's forgiveness. 
But even more than that, how we respond to Jesus reveals how much we recognise or value the forgiveness that Jesus has secured for us in the Gospel. You see, Simon's lack of hospitality isn't just a social mishap. It isn't just a social, like a simple cultural faux pas. Simon's lack of love for Jesus actually shows that Simon didn't understand the sinful predicament he was in and he didn't understand grace. Simon didn't understand forgiveness. And because he didn't understand grace and forgiveness, he didn't know how to love Jesus. What a tragic, tragic response. You see, to the religious conservative who Simon is, he, he thought he was on good terms with God because he was kind of clean and all tidy before God through all of the good things that he had done. But this wasn't enough. He thought what he could do was good enough to make God happy with him. But this didn't cancel his debt. And neither do our good works either. You see, the sinful woman on the other side knew exactly who she was. She knew exactly how broken she was. And she recognised that she needed Jesus to restore her and to forgive her. And her response is a phenomenal display of devotion and gratitude and love towards Jesus. Simon didn't think he needed Jesus, so he didn't love Jesus. The woman knew she needed Jesus and she loved Jesus. I don't want to suggest that there's a direct correlation between our love and whether we are forgiven or not. But how are you going this morning with loving Jesus? How are you going this morning with enjoying Jesus and the forgiveness that he has won for you through his death and resurrection? How are you at going to live a life for Jesus? At your workplace, in your households? Are your families and your households defined by rule following or are your houses defined by a loving and gracious relationship with Jesus. My prayer this morning for all of us is that we would be reminded of this act of generous devotion from this woman and that our lives as followers of Jesus would show the world how incredible the forgiveness we have in him is. And one of the ways the world sees that is by how much we love Jesus. So what has this parable got to teach us this morning? Well, there are some of you here this morning who perhaps might be a bit like Simon. Maybe you struggle with um, self-righteousness, thinking you're kind of doing a pretty good job with this whole Christianity thing. I read my Bible, I go to church, I sing the songs, I say the things. I do a pretty good job as a Christian. Maybe that's you this morning. I want to remind, if that is you this morning, I want to remind you that none of those things will ever, will ever take away your immeasurably large debt of sin before God. If that's you this morning, I'd encourage you, I'd plead with you to repent of your sin and to reach out to Jesus again in faith and repentance. 
and experience the restoration and the forgiveness that is available through the gospel. Maybe there are some of you here this morning who have come into church and you feel more like this sinful woman. Maybe you have lived a life that is far from God. Maybe you've made a heck of a lot of mistakes in life. Maybe you've broken relationships, broken people, and maybe you feel like you're too far away from God. I want you to know this morning that Jesus, when he sees people who recognize and acknowledge their sin before him, he goes to them. Your sin does not stop Jesus going to you. In the gospel, Jesus stopped at nothing to show his love and grace towards us. So if you are here this morning and you feel like you've just done one step too far and you are too far gone for God, I want to encourage you this morning, it is not true. Because Jesus' grace and his forgiveness is there for you. You see, I think at various points in our lives, as Christians, we probably tend to float between Simon and the sinful woman. We, tend, we continue to struggle with self-righteousness and pride, and we also tend to struggle as well by trying to push God away, thinking we've done too much wrong, we've sinned too much. Well, according to Jesus, his grace is sufficient. For his power is made perfect in weakness, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. I began the sermon this morning by saying that we live in a world that is slowly but surely losing the art of forgiveness. And the truth that this parable is teaching us this morning is that unless we come to know and understand the forgiveness that we have in the gospel, we will never be able to extend forgiveness and grace to other people either. Unless we can show the world that each and every one of us have been forgiven from an immeasurably large debt, we're never going to be able to love other people well either. If we can't wrap our heads around the fact that we need Jesus to forgive us and then we have the opportunity to love and serve him out of the forgiveness that he has given us, I don't think our world will ever see what true forgiveness looks like. But on the positive side, as God's church, as Jesus' church, we are the ones who know this forgiveness. So not just today, but as you go out into the world this week, in your workplaces, in your families, in your homes, remember the forgiveness that Jesus has offered to all of us and take that good news to the world. Let's pray together and respond to God's word. Father, we confess this morning that there are times in our lives where we have struggled with self-righteous pride and we have not loved Jesus well. Father, there are times when we um, foolishly try to convince ourselves that we don't need Jesus. But Father, we thank you so much in our desperate need, you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven. Father, for those of us here this morning um, who um, are encouraged this morning by the gracious invitation of Jesus, we pray that you would use your words 
um, not just today but during this week, to help us remember and reflect the enormous sacrifice that Jesus made for us and help us to love Jesus better. For those here this morning, Father, who might feel distant and far away from Jesus, may this story remind them that Jesus came for the sick, that he came to forgive sinful people. He came to restore sinful people and bring them back into right relationship with you. Father, as we go into our weeks and we pray as well here for Eastgate, that this would be a church family that is known for its love of Jesus, a church that is known um, for being people who know that they need your forgiveness and a people that know that forgiveness that is in the gospel. We pray that you would unite um, this church family together in your love as people who are redeemed sinners for the glory of God and for our good. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.